Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so everybody should be able to see the sea, Sea of Galilee on your screen. This is going to be part two of how many parts? I have no idea. However long we can keep walking through the Sea of Galilee, which could take us quite a while since one class can cover one verse in the, in the Bible. So the Sea of Galilee, part two. We looked last week at this picture right here. And this photo is the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus' ministry was centered where he did the majority of his ministry work. The Bible says most of his miracles happened in the cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. So this is the uh, northwest corner. I'm standing, the picture is taken from a mountain called Mount Arbel. So if I show you a map, this is what we did last week. Mount Arbel sits on that western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Quite tall compared to the sea. Uh, gives you a great view. You can hike up it. It's a national park in Israel. And we noted last week that surrounding the Sea of Galilee are four, well, we broke them down into basically four segregated groups. And the groups are the religious Jews. That's where Jesus had his ministry. Small cities all built around the synagogue, not built like Greek cities. These are not Greek cities. These are little villages, and everything in, about that village is centered around the synagogue. And of course, the synagogue is centered around the Word of God, the Torah. So everything about their life is centered around God. If you go south of that, you get by the city called Tiberias, which was a brand new city. Herod Antipas decided to put his capital city right there at Tiberias, named it after the Caesar who gave him power, Caesar Tiberius. And what you get are people who live down there are called Herodians in the Bible. These are secular Jews or those who support the Roman power. So Herodians. If we go across the lake, you have what's called the Decapolis, 10 cities, and those are pagan cities. So there's one Decapolis city that sits right on the Sea of Galilee called Hippos. That means horse. It's also called Susita, which means mare in uh, Aramaic. And then the last corner up here, uh, headquartered at a city called Gamla, are the Zealots. And those were the fiercely patriotic Nobody rules over Israel but God, definitely not that Roman power, and we will resort to violence. God willing, we'll talk about the zealots in a couple weeks, and you'll see where they took their heroes from and why they justified the use of violence. Of course, Jesus disagreed with them. So there would be parts of Jesus' message they loved. There'd be parts of Jesus' message that they didn't like. So this was uh, what we did all last week, and it's going to be important to note as I said last week, 
where something happens, where the the event is taking place, or yeah, so Jesus is going to move around the lake, and we want to know where's he going to, and where's the event taking place. It helps us understand his audience and often how they react. As again, we'll see that today with the Sea of looking at the Sea of Galilee. All right, so that's review. That was last week. Today, I only want to talk about the sea and what the idea, the concept of sea means. It holds tremendous symbolism to the ancient mind beyond just a body of water. So this picture was, it's at sunrise, so I'm looking east. We were staying in Tiberias, looking east across the lake. The sun is rising. And the tilapia fishermen are going out first thing in the morning as the sun's coming up. So just like good fishermen go out early in the morning uh, at sunrise, the tilapia fishermen. So these guys were heading out to catch tilapia. About two hours later, as we were eating breakfast, they pulled back into the hotel and they brought in fresh buckets of tilapia right out of the Sea of Galilee. But we're going to talk sea. So the idea is that the sea. In Hebrew, yam. I'll say that a, a number of times. You don't need to memorize that, but it'll be helpful for you to understand part of this message. So we're going to talk about what the concept of the sea is, the, the symbolism of the sea. And then secondly, there's an idea throughout the ancient Near East, the religions of the ancient Near East, and we find it in our Bible, that uh, something about the authority of the Father being passed down to the Son. So the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't do it explicitly. They do it through the stories. And the stories, or Jesus is going to show you he's the Son of God by what he does, not by what he says or give you a definition. And this is a cultural way of speaking, so that when we see the authority of the Father, enacted by Jesus, you say, aha, he's the son of God, because I see what he's doing, and that's something God does. We'll get to that. Those are the two main topics. So this is the Sea of Galilee, and where Jesus came to live, and maybe there's a reason he showed up at the sea rather than staying in the mountains. This is where the disciples lived and worked. They were fishermen, and they faced the sea every single day, and there might be something to that, uh, as we'll take a look at later in the presentation. So I want to do something just real quick, set the stage for how we're going to look at the Bible, and this part is not on your handout. We've talked about this repeatedly in the past, but it's important to set our minds on how we're going to look at Scripture. So this iceberg represents Scripture. God's message is communicated to us, but it's communicated to us in layers. It's very deep. In fact, it's infinitely deep because God is infinitely deep. So we can read the Bible at the surface and we can get things out of it. There's nothing wrong with reading it at the surface. Do not lie. Well, that means do not lie. So read it right at the surface. But we can also read the Bible symbolically. And so the Bible holds a bunch of symbols that then communicate a particular message, kind of like Jesus is the Lamb. Well, now we've got to go understand the symbol of the Lamb. 
but the symbolic nature of the Bible is layered. It's deeper. So we have to mine the symbolic meaning out of the depth of the Scripture. One area to discuss is how the bio, or how different cultures communicate. That would be a good way to put it, how different cultures communicate. For instance, you have low-context communication. Low-context communication means everything that I'm telling you, every, all of my meaning is right on the surface. We can compare that to high-context. High-context is I say something and it carries tremendous meaning, but it's deep, it's layered in. You have to search out the meaning underneath it. We can put these on a continuum and say, how do we communicate versus how the Bible communicates? So, for instance, here in the United States, and communication experts have done studies of this exact thing, how you communicate, the United States is the lowest, lowest of all countries on context meaning everything we say to each other, communication, is all at the surface. And that makes sense because we're a melting pot of cultures. So you can't communicate with cultural symbols because the cultures don't understand them. It's a melting pot. So what we do here in the West, particularly in the United States, all our communication is low context at the surface. That's how we like it. Well, how's the Bible communication? And how's communication in the East, in Israel? Well, it's the exact opposite. The ancient Near East, and even Israel today, although it's become more Western, is high context. They weave their meaning underneath the words they're telling you. And so, as both the speaker and listener expect something deeper, that's why Jesus tells a parable, and everybody expects that the meaning is deeper in the parable. So, when the speaker speaks, and the listener listens, we expect, we live in a in cultural, our communication is based on culture. So this, in, a, in a, the United States, the speaker speaks in low context, the listener listens in low context. But if you go to the East, it's the exact opposite. So if we go back to our, this idea, you can read the Bible on the surface, that's low context, or you can read the, the Bible down at the deeper levels, that's high context. And what do you think happens when a low-context culture reads a high-context document like the Bible? Confusion reigns. That's what happens, because we don't understand that we need to look below the surface and try to find the meaning in the symbols or in the metaphors or in whatever else, however else they're communicating. So if we read it from low context and we go down to high, we might miss something. And it doesn't mean we get, can't understand and have a relationship with God. It's just we'll miss the depth of what's being said. And that's what I've been trying to do throughout all of these lessons, is to go back to the original context and look deeper and say, what, what would they have heard or seen? And that's what we're going to do today. So the idea of see is symbolic. So we have to look at the symbol and apply the symbol across what Jesus is doing. And then we'd say, aha, now I understand the message being communicated. Let's go then, that's just a little introduction of how we have to learn to read the Bible, right? I don't want to demand the Bible speak in my Western ways. I want to learn to read the Bible in the way that the Bible communicates. 
So the sea, and this is ubiquitous around the ancient Near East. All the cultures surrounding the Bible and the Bible itself treat the sea in the same way. So God speaks into cultures. So what do we know about sea? Now, this is starting at number two on your handout. So the, the sea holds symbolism in the ancient mind. And the symbolism goes something like this. All of these are kind of true at the same time. The sea is the abyss. We'll look at a diagram in a minute about where they get that idea. The sea is the abyss. It's the underworld. It's the watery, dark underworld. It's a place of judgment. That's what we looked at last week. Take the millstone, put it around the neck, throw them in the sea. And the place of judgment is the descent into the underworld to be judged. So it's the abyss. We'll see that, God willing, next week too. The sea is the enemy of God. It's the forces of chaos are represented by the sea, water, storms, uh, chaos. They all go together. So the sea is the enemy of God. It's the one who stands in the face of God. And we'll note a little bit later, there's even a Canaanite god called Yom. That's a, a Canaanite god from surrounding Israel called Yom. By the way, Yom is the Hebrew word for sea, and the Canaanite god Yom is representative of the Mediterranean Sea and how the sea is constantly pushing up against the boundaries that God has, has lined out for it. And those waves are pushing and pushing, and every once in a while it throws a storm into the land, trying to disrupt the order that God brings. That's the sea. It's a much deeper symbol than a lake or water. So we have to realize God speaks to us in human terms. He uses culture to communicate a message, and there's nothing wrong with that, particularly in a high-context culture. So one place that you can go find this stuff. It's a great reference book for anybody looking to build a library that helps you understand all the symbolism. This is called the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. It was voted the number one book, Christian book in 1999. So it's a huge dictionary. And if you were to look up water or sea or chaos, any of that, you'll find all this stuff about how it represents the forces of chaos, the enemies of God, and how all these cultures are weaving that picture in. You know, the, the flood of Noah is, is a judgment scene, and it's chaos that envelops the, the earth. So the Dictionary of uh, Biblical Imagery is a great resource if you're looking to build a library. So if you look up any of those, water, sea, chaos, what you get are that the sea are the, is the enemy of God, the forces of chaos. So that's not necessarily how we always look at the sea. Let's start now. I'm going to uh, number three as the idea that the sea is the abyss. And as I said, I think next week we'll see how this, how this is used in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's the entrance to the underworld. In the ancient mind, the ancients had a very particular way of viewing the cosmos. Now, I'm going to show you two pictures. One of them's on your, screen, on your sheet. The first one, though, I didn't put on your sheet. 
But let me explain how the ancient mind envisioned the way God created the world. So they envisioned that the earth, the land, was a disk floating on water. Now, where do they get that from? Well, if you dig straight down, what do you find? You find water. So there must be water beneath us. If you see a spring, water just coming out of the earth, well, there must be water under the earth. So the earth must be sitting on water. If you walk to the edge of any landmass, you'll find more water. So there's water on either side of us. We also notice that every once in a while, the skies open up and water comes down from heaven. So there must be water up in the heavens. So you get on this shot right here, you can see they use the word the abyss, and the abyss represents all that water underneath the earth. And then when God created the heavens and the earth, he divided the waters. So that means some waters went up, you have waters up and you have waters down. And then the, the idea is this, that wherever you find an opening, or I'm sorry, wherever you find a body of water, like this in this picture, there's a lake right there. Well, then it must be an opening to the abyss, an opening to the underworld. And that's just how they view the universe. So let me show you the next one. This is what's on your sheet. So if you look here, it's basically that conception. The earth is a floating disk. You have water underneath the earth. You have water above the earth. And God set a firmament between the waters above and the waters below so that order can be attained on the earth. That's part of the picture. So down here at the bottom is the abyss, and then you have the waters above the earth. Now you might think, well, now that's not how we view it, but that's the point. We want to go back and say, how did they view the concept of the world? In fact, let me show you. Uh, we don't have time, so I'm, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you'll know this verse. It comes from the Ten Commandments. So let me just read this is Exodus verse 20. I'm sorry, Exodus verse 20. Exodus 20 verse 4. It's, one of, it's in the Ten Commandments. And God says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So even in the Ten Commandments, God uses the expression, the waters under the earth, and oh, by the way, apparently people thought there might be something in the waters underneath that we could create an image of and then bow down to it. And that's exactly what they did. So they envisioned that there were gods that lived under the earth in the watery world, and when they came out, the rains would fall. And that's just their way they pictured how the cycles of the seasons went. So we find that in the Bible, and I just want you to make sure that we're not just making something up. It's even in the text. So if we go back to this, you could say, look, anywhere you find an opening, anywhere you find an opening in the earth with water, whether it's a lake or a spring, you would say, aha, that's an opening to the abyss, to the underworld. In fact, springs were often a site where you would place a worship place for you to worship a god. So for those of you who've been to Caesarea Philippi, you know that there's a spring comes gushing right out of the side of the mountain. And of course, they set up there a worship to the god Pan, who's a fertility god. Because 
they want Pan to come out, water the earth so that the crops will grow and the animals will flourish. And that's, he, of course, lives in the abyss down below. So if we look at this picture and you say, when you see the Sea of Galilee, it's not just a nice lake. You know, our, us Westerners travel there and think, boy, wouldn't it be great to have a summer home right here next to the, next to the water? And you notice not many people live right on the sea because that's not the, the way it is in the East. But if we picture this as an opening to the abyss, this is where the demons live. Again, we'll see that next week. And then you think, ah, now I understand fishermen, right? The fishermen are the people that go out onto the sea every single day and go toe-to-toe with the abyss and all the forces that live there. Why does Jesus pick fishermen? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one might be these were people that went toe-to-toe with the openings to the underworld. And if you're going to go out into the world for God, you're going to have to battle these chaotic forces. And that's what they did every day. So there's a really interesting picture about fishermen and the sea. So it's an opening, opening to the abyss. Okay, next, this is number four on your sheet. The sea is represented as chaos or the forces of chaos. Now, where do we get this? Well, again, no time to turn there, but let me, I'm going to read to you Genesis verses, Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. It comes right out of our Bible. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 starts with chaos and God. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on. Now the earth was formless, tohu, and empty, vohu. Now those two words, we think formless and empty, but it's really, it's the chaotic, primordial chaos. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, the tahom. And right above the deep, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So right at the beginning of our Bible, you find the watery chaos, the primordial chaos that was there. And it's formless, tohu vavohu, formless and empty. Darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was over the waters. So in the beginning, there was lack of structure, lack of order. There's chaos. And then the Spirit moves, and God speaks, and boom! When God speaks His words of truth, chaos divides. And you find, whoa, the water, some waters go up, some waters go down. And because the chaos divided, order begins to break out. Plants, animals, land, people. Now you get God's creation. And you say, okay, well, what happened next? Well, the people then turned everything back into chaos, and God said, all right, I got to do over. Let's flood the earth. So the waters from above came down, the waters from below came up, and it's like a decreation event. That's the Noah's flood. So this is how our Bible begins. And interestingly enough, this is how God works even today. If your life is in chaos, let God's word speak into your life. If there's a situation of chaos, let God take care of the chaos. Let him speak. Or even when we speak words of truth into chaos, we have that power to channel God's sovereignty over chaos. And this is what God, God's in the business of dividing chaos and bringing order. And by the way, business is booming. 
because chaos reigns here on earth. Anyways, it's right out of the Bible. This is really important for us to recognize that when you start saying something like the sea is the chaos, it comes out of our scripture. And the whole point, this is one of the main points, is Genesis 1 talks about the authority of God. Who has the authority over the chaos? God does. And oh, by the way, we'll see again, God willing, in a a week or two, God's going to transfer that authority to his Messiah. And so we have God as order, and the sea then becomes the enemy of God, becomes the place of disorder. It's so, so cool how this is going to come into play. God has authority over the chaos. Very important for us to recognize that. Um, By the way, if you think even in our world today, you think, ah, we're modern people. We don't think that way. Really? Watch the storms come off the oceans and watch how people act. Do storms still produce chaos today? Well, go to Texas. And we just saw in Texas, a storm showed up and everything went into chaos. So when the storms come off the Pacific, you'd think the world was about to end in California, even though the storms come off the Pacific every year. This summer, when the hurricanes come off the Atlantic, you'll think, based on the news, that the world is about to end. No, we still act, human beings still act as if they're that chaotic force that's out over the, in the waters, the sea, is still active. And it's almost like we can't stop reacting to that. So we're still living with it today. Okay, let's turn number, uh, oh, I have number four on your sheet twice. Sorry about that. If you turn over to the back of your sheet, the second number four, the sea in Hebrew is called Yam. And the Old Testament people are desert people. They're not sea people. One way we notice this is in the Bible, there's something, it's something around 70 different words for thistles or thorns. The desert is full of thistles and thorns. And so there's 70 different types of words to describe thistles and thorns. But when you go to the sea, there's only one word. And it doesn't matter if it's a small lake, a pond, or the Pacific Ocean, it's yam. So they're not sea people. They they use one word to describe any body of water, yam. And this is going to be, they're so cool. Wait till we, there's a story with Jesus. When you see it, you think, oh, I wish I would have known that years ago. It really helps me understand the story. Um, but it has to do with Yom. Here's the other thing, though. The Canaanite culture, right next door to the Israelites, also had a god called Yom. And Yom represented the Mediterranean Sea. So every once in a while, Yom would re- rear his he- ugly head, storms would come in off the Mediterranean Sea, and they depicted him as some force for chaos. Now. This is just a little bit of how do we know this? It's really a cool thing if you want to study something about an archaeological find. So if we look at this map of of Israel and that eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem is down here where that star is, right next to the Dead Sea. That's where Jerusalem is. The Sea of Galilee is just to the north. And in 1928, there was a farmer, so this is quite recent, 1928, there's a farmer 
who was farming his field up at this city called Ugarit. Well, it wasn't called Ugarit then. It's up in Syria. He's farming his field. He hits a giant stone. Of course, you try to move the stones out of your field. Well, when they went to move the stone, they found an ancient civilization that had been buried. We didn't even know it existed there. So he had been farming his field on top of an old city called Ugarit. And when they excavated it, troves of documents and writings and stories, and it actually, when they found this, there are some Hebrew words in the Bible that actually, when they found these writings, they help us inter- better interpret the Hebrew from the Bible. There's a number of Hebrew words where we're just not sure what they are, and this find is really amazing. So they f- and what they found was how closely integrated the thinking at Ugarit and the thinking in Israel was, but they also found this idea of Yam, the sea. So here's the way it looks at Ugarit, and this is very brief. We can't talk too deeply about Ugarit. At Ugarit, they found their god was called El. That was the father of the god. He had a son, Baal. So, you know, when Elijah does battle with the Baal priests, it's showing that two gods are battling it out. And which God has supremacy? That's the whole story. Because the people right next to Israel had a God called Baal. And who's going who's gonna to reign supreme? And then the last thing is, they had a God called Yom, the Sea of Chaos. So in our Old Testament, when God does something to the sea, you have to realize that's speaking to all the cultures around them, saying, our God is more powerful than your God. And how do people react when someone walks up and says, our God is more powerful than your God? They generally don't like it. And you can see that's why Israel was constantly, you know, getting in fights because of their God. Okay, all of this, the sea is the abyss, the sea is the chaos, the forces of chaos, the enemy of God. It all goes into the story. The last piece is the authority of the Father. So when Jesus does any act, One of the ways that we want to say, how does that act communicate to us that he's the Son of God? Well, the way you would look is go search the Old Testament. And if you find that the act that Jesus is doing is done by his Father in the Old Testament, you would say, aha, the authority of the Father is being passed down to the Son. That's how you know he is the true Son, because the Father is passing down authority. That's an ancient Near East way of thinking. So, if God has authority over the sea, as we saw in Genesis 1, the chaos, then we should see the same thing happening with Jesus, the Son. And that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament. So, here's what I want you to do. Open up your Bible to Luke 8. And we're only going to look at three verses, four verses. We're going to do the rest of the story next week. And we'll look at it in Mark, because Luke and Mark tell the story a little bit different, partly because Luke struggles with geography. But if you turn to Luke 8, and then let me set up the story here. So the beginning of Luke 8, everything they're doing is in the area of the religious Jews. So if you happen to read the beginning of Luke 8, you'll find out they're over in that northwest corner 
Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Gennesaret. That's where all this stuff is happening. And then Jesus says this to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Now, Luke tells us, let's go to the other side of the lake. That's added by Luke. Mark says, let's go to the other side. The other side of what? Well, the other side of just about everything. But it is the other side of the lake. So they go this direction. Now, who lives on that, the other side of the lake? The pagans. It's the Decapolis, and it's the pagan area. Now, just think about this. If the sea is the enemy of God, and Jesus is going to go bring the good news of God's reign to a people group that don't believe in God, that don't know, this, that reject the God of Israel, what do you think will happen? Do you think the adversary is going to let the good news just sail across the sea and over to another side? No way. The, the adversary is going to rise up and try to stop you. The devil has spent years convincing those pagans that right is wrong, black is white, up is down, that the real chaos is when you follow that God of Israel. That's chaos. But if you live with, like we do in the Greek world with the, our sexual license and our greed and our, and our penchant for it's all about me and doing whatever we want, no, that's the path to shalom. That's how you find peace. And you have two different views of how you discover peace. Well, there's no way the devil's going to let the good news get to that side of the, the lake, right? So what do we find in the story? So now look at Luke 8, 22 to 25. And you have to realize everything we just talked about, the symbolism of that sea, is coming into this story right here. So one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Now, we'll go more into detail of each one of these little sentences right here and how important they are. As they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, what happens next? Well, the abyss is going to rise up. The storm, the chaos is going to come and try to stop them, right? A squall comes down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. That's exactly what you would expect of the enemy of God to try to stop them. Now, what happens next? Keep going. The disciples went and woke Jesus up. Master, Master, we're going to drown. And what does Jesus do? He stands up. He rebukes the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. And now you say, who has authority over the chaos? That's the question. Because we have to now ask, who in the Old Testament, since the New Testament wasn't written yet, who has the authority to calm the storm? This is the main point right here. And if the authority of the Father is being passed down to the Son, then Jesus is the Son of God. So, who has the authority to calm the storm? Well, you can turn there if you want. I'll put it on the screen. We're going to look at three different Psalms next week. Today, we'll look at one, Psalm 89, 9 and 10. So if you want to turn in your Bible, I'll give you a second to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is talking about God, 
talking about God's powers, God's authority. Verse 9 says this, You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. So who stills the sea? God does. The Father. Look at verse 10. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. Now, well, let me keep going. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. So Rahab is an enemy of God. And Rahab, if you look at the other places in the Bible, it's depicted as a sea monster, the monster of chaos that rises up out of the waters. So in this psalm, you get God stilling the sea and crushing his enemy, which is the mythical sea monster that everyone calls Rahab. That shows up a number of times in the text. So now we know who has authority over the chaos. God does. And then he passes it on to his son so that the son has the same authority. And look at Luke 8, because this is so, it tells us so much about this event. Um, Luke 8, Luke 8, 20, uh, verse 25. Where's your faith? Jesus says to the disciples. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Now, what's crazy about this? Who is this? Why are... They asked the question after he stills the storm. At this point in time, Jesus had already done miracles. He'd driven out demons. He's healing people left and right. And the disciples never say a word. See what, do you see what happened? The monster of chaos rose up. This is exactly what happens. All right, what was the last thing you heard? Okay, let me, uh, let me go back to Luke 8. One second. It is kind of funny that the monster of chaos would arise. Okay, let me mute everybody, and I'll go back and share my screen. Let me back up a few slides here. Let me go back to Psalm 89. Okay, so we got that. We got the idea that it's only God who has authority over the chaos. And that authority then is passed on to the Son. That's the important piece here. So the disciples, well, here's what he says. So it's verse 25. And Jesus says, where's your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Now, the reason that's so important is because at this point in Jesus, in time, Jesus had already been doing miracles. He's healing people. He's driving out demons. And the disciples never comment on it. So why are they commenting here? Well, he commands the winds and the water, the storm, right there, and the storm obeys, which means he has authority over the chaos. And it's at that moment, because the disciples know their Bible and they know that only God still storms, that they say, uh-oh. Who is this in the boat? And that's a, it's a remarkable little detail that we have to pay attention to in this story. So what's the point? Again, I'm just repeating again and again and again. The sea, it's the abyss. It's the enemy of God. It's the forces of chaos. There was even that Canaanite god called Yom. So every time we see the word sea, then we have to superimpose 
all of these things about C and about chaos and who has authority over chaos and who has authority over chaos in your life. Now, God wants us to channel his power into the chaotic world that we live in so that we go out and bring order to the chaos of the world. That's part of our mission is to be order bringers in this chaotic world. So the C, you have God's authority. That is from the beginning of the Bible to the end. He talks about, you know, in Revelation, it says there was no sea. And for those of you who, who like going to the beach, you think, wait a minute, why isn't there a sea in heaven? Well, it's because of this. The sea represents the enemy of God, the, the chaos. So in, when you get to heaven, there is going to be no sea, no enemy of God. All right, so God's authority. That authority is then transferred down to the Messiah, his son. I'll give you, I'll show you another piece from rabbinic literature that it's really cool. God is a God of order, and the sea then is the enemy of God. Okay, so that's, that's part two. It's the symbolism of the sea and how important it is for us to, to look deeper into the text at what's going on. And when we finish the rest of the story next week, you'll see all these little details fit in to the abyss and what's happening. And when Jesus walks on water, how would that be? How would a, a first century person understand what the message that's going on above that? Why do the disciples cry out, it's a ghost, when they see Jesus on the water? It's because of all of this stuff having to do with the way that they view the idea of sea. So, okay, now I'm going to stop the share. Well, that's a good question. I think the good, the part that's good is when God divides the sea, which is the representative of chaos, and you get dry land. And if you read throughout, Job, especially the book of Job, you know how Job says, God marks out the boundaries of the sea. And as long as the sea stays there, it's good. There's order. But you notice the sea is constantly battling God, right? At least in the, if you go down to the beach, it looks like the sea is constantly trying to take over the land go past its boundary. One of the main points of it is good is that every time God moves something towards order, it's considered good. Even if you look out in the world and think there's still chaos, God's creation is good. I don't know if that helped or not. So Genesis 1 is a difficult, it's a difficult chapter. There's another place in Genesis 1. I mean, people have been writing books on, on the first sentence of Genesis you know, for the past 200 years, and we still haven't quite plumbed the depths of it. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the sea monster, and it's literally, that's the word for sea monster. And the point is, if there's only one God, because most of the ancient religions had two gods battling it out. And so to the ancient Near East mind, the God of chaos might win out one day. Our Bible says, no, 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 God created all of that. So when you see chaos in the world, he's the only one who has authority over it. And he can't be dethroned. He can't be taken off the throne. So you have faith that your God can't be moved, even if it looks, the world looks chaotic outside. That's part of the deeper message as we read. Isaiah says, I create both good and evil. That's what God says. 
Because when if he's the only creator God, then everything must be caused by him in some way, shape, or form. So there's the real fear. I mean, we see it all the time with storms. and I mean, we even we anthropomorphize our storms, right? Winter storm Daniel is targeting Minneapolis. And it's like, no, the storm doesn't target anybody. You don't give it a name. It just, it's called winter in Minneapolis, something like that. Well, you know, and I, I, didn't, I didn't say this. They recognize, they being the ancient mind, recognizes that water, there's a paradox, right? The same water that you can drown in is the water that brings life. So there's a paradox. So you could say, I need water to live, but too much water, I die. There is a paradox. You know, even if you think about your own life, Think about when you're walking through life and something happens, you get a bit of news. You lose somebody, a loved one. You lose a job. Something devastating happens in your life. It feels as if the whole ground underneath you became shaky. Like the waters, uh, Isaiah says, you know, the waters are rising up to my, to my neck. That's what, it, that's what life feels like when it becomes, when, when chaos feels, when it's chaos is raining. A war feels overwhelming. So, because the waters, the floodwaters in the Middle East can create chaos, but also just the feeling of your own life, that when you're in chaos, you feel like you don't have a good, solid structure to stand on. Right, anything that destabilizes our lives, it almost feels like, hey, I need a rock to put my foot back on. And that's what God represents, is that stabilizing force in the midst of a chaotic world. Yes, go ahead. That's the picture of Jesus walking on the water. He's above the chaos. And if you focus on Jesus, as Peter does, you'll remain above the chaos too. And, and what the Bible says is, when Peter saw the wind and the waves, he became afraid, and fear will sink you. That's it. Yes, thank you. That's great. We will go over that story because there's even more to it. Yes, and that's the power of getting the image of what that sea means, is it's, it's much deeper than just, we, we, we're scientific materialists. So we just want to know, how did, you know, the, how did the molecules of water hold Jesus up? We want to solve it in a, you know, using a spreadsheet. Instead of looking at the image of what that represents, that he's above the chaos. Oh, one last thing. So, you know when Paul, Paul is going to Rome. Paul wants to bring the good news to the Roman Empire, and he sets out to Rome. What happens next? Yeah, there's a storm. Of course there's a storm. He gets out on the sea, you know, then the storm doesn't stop him. He gets to Malta, and what's he bitten by? A snake. <laughs> so it's like the devil's all over the place trying to stop Paul from getting to Rome. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.